right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss. I'm a licensed therapist specializing in OCD and anxiety disorders. And this is a question and answer based podcast. You can send me a question about OCD and anxiety, and I will answer said question, likely in a future episode. Um, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can send me a question there by clicking on the submit a question link. The best way to do this is by sending a question, an audio question, uh, over to over to me. Over you can do it either through Instagram. So go over to Instagram. I'm uh, Fearcast Podcast over there. Follow me over there if you so choose to. Uh, but send me a direct message over there. Record your uh, uh, press on the microphone button in the uh, chat box and record it that way. You can also just uh, record it into your phone. Email it to me at questions at fearcastpodcast.com or send the the link to it if you you know connect it to a Google Drive or something like that. Send me the link to it over at fearcastpodcast.com. Any of those ways, the audio questions are going to get kicked to the top of the list and will be answered first. They will take priority over any of the uh, other questions. Um, and uh, today is going to be one of those days where someone has asked an audio question and it's kicked up to the top of the list. Now, they were delayed just a little bit. And the reason is, is that I wanted to try to get somebody on who could speak more intelligently about the subject. So the question today is going to be about EMDR and OCD and kind of the overlap between the two and how trauma fits into that and what how can one treatment affect the other. Um, a couple episodes, they're going to and talk about it here briefly, but a couple episodes ago, I talked a little bit about EMDR and kind of what it can look like and maybe some problems with it. And the person messaged back or the a person messaged and had a question further about that. So I have Bronwyn Schroyer on to talk about it, and I'll introduce her in just a moment. Uh, but I was lucky enough to have her come on, and we chatted at length about what EMDR treatment actually is, um, because I want to give it a fair shake. I want to talk about what EMDR actually is, and to be uh, to have someone who trusts it, knows it, does it, um, and uh, to be able to talk about it while also talking about where it maybe falls short for OCD, where EMDR shines, where it doesn't shine as well, and similarly where, you know, CBT and ERP shines and where it may not, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about that um, uh, coming up. But before I jump into that, um, I hope everybody is doing well this weekend. Uh, we've got uh, here in the States, we've got the 4th of July coming up. So have all of you blow something up for America because, you know, America. Um, also, uh, for those of you who are gearing up to go to the IOCDF conference this year, I hope um, planning goes well, travel uh, goes well, and um, I'm just hoping to have a really fun time. I'm trying to reorient my focus for what I want to get out of the conference. I'm not trying to take over the conference. I'm not trying to uh, you know, get to the inner circle of whatever. I'm... Man, I'm looking this year to just to try to learn a little bit of new stuff, connect with some people I don't typically talk to, and uh, and see a city that I don't see often. Um, I I hope you guys are going into the the conference with this same mindset. Um, you know, one of the things that um, one of the things that I, I was actually talking to folks about, and man, now I'm questioning whether or not I talked about this on the podcast. I don't know if I did. I apologize, but there's a lot of repetitive stuff in life, so this is another one of those things. I'll say this. 
the conference, for those of you who are going, can be overwhelming. This podcast can be overwhelming with the, with some of the information. The amount of podcasts and YouTube videos and TikTok videos and Instagram people, there's a ton of information out there and it can feel like you have to do it all right now. And you have to do it all correctly. You don't. When you go to the conference, and maybe I'm talking to myself with this too, but when we go to the conference, we're going to learn a lot of new things. I inevitably do this. I learn a bunch of new things, or I'm reminded of old things. And I go, oh man, I want to try to do that, or I want to implement that, or integrate that into the work that I'm doing. And my mind just gets so full of stuff. And what I try to do is just blah, just do all of it all at once. And it never comes out well. Or I, I try to learn something new, and it throws everything off. And it does. And then I abandon the new thing or I question myself or do things just go topsy-turvy. Instead, what I'm going to try to do this year and what I encourage everybody to do this year, maybe with some new information, is I want you to pick one thing at a time. So let's say you go, you go to a talk and you hear something new. Maybe it's in this podcast today, you hear something new. When you get that new information, I want you to be patient with yourself. I want you to try one new thing and be consistent with it. I'm going to try it. You're going to do that new thing every day, a couple of times a day, every other day, whatever it might be. But you're going to try that new thing over and over and over again until it becomes second nature. Once it becomes second nature, once it becomes easier to do, then we can choose whether or not it's going to be effective for you whether or not it's going to be useful, whether or not it's, and, and when you can start to implement it at different times, right? You just kind of learn a new tool that you can pull out when you need to. Um, Brian and I kind of talk about this when it comes to uh, EMDR treatment, uh, or, excuse me, trauma treatment, uh, OCD treatment, anxiety, and kind of pulling different tools and techniques out of these big giant bags and not getting stuck into one idea, but saying, here, what works? I think we want to all build this mindset for ourselves that we're just trying to build what works and what works for you, the listener. If you are trying to overcome your own anxiety and it just feels like it's not working and you do all these things and you're trying to do all of them all at once, it can feel overwhelming and it probably is. Don't give up on yourself though. Start with one thing, you do that one thing, you try it over and over and over again. If it doesn't work, that's okay. Then you try to go to plan B, and then you go to plan C and plan D and go onward and onward. And maybe after you go through the entire alphabet, you have to go back to A, and you discover that A actually is going to work, and A actually worked better than you thought. And you needed to go through all the way to Z in order to come back to A. So we're going to be patient. We're going to try things. We're going to be consistent about them. And if they don't work, we're not going to say we're screwed. We're not going to say that we're never going to get better or that we're broken or more broken because someone else is maybe using those tools or whatever, whatever the verbiage might be that you use against yourself. Slowly but surely implementing new things. So anyhow, that's my mini sermon at the top. Take what you want from it or don't. And that is also fine. So um, all right, let me introduce um, Bronwyn. Um, so uh, Bronwyn Schroyer is a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in OCD and PTSD. She is a co-founder of the OCD Training School and provides consultation and training in inference-based CBT. Bronwyn is also an EMDR certified specialist, 
excuse me, she's a EMDR certified therapist and EMDR consultant in training. So without further ado, everybody, here is my conversation with Bronwyn Schroyer. Right. Bronwyn Schroyer, thank you so much for joining us today for the FearCast to talk about the overlap between EMDR and OCD. So th- thank you again for, um, for chatting with us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, um, well, as we were talking just before, I'd love to start by just talking about, uh, about um, just what EMDR is. We talk about, or we, we in in the world of treatment, you'll hear you know there's a, a a bazillion well acronyms for different things, CBT, ERP, ACT, ACT, EMDR, all, all sorts of things, and a lot of people will argue that one treatment can do everything, or that this treatment is especially designed for that. You'll hear people talk about OC, uh, uh, CBT and ERP as as the gold standard of treatment. We also right. hear people in the EMDR world say that that can treat or even should treat OCD, another acronym. But um, so I wanted to just have somebody on who knows about EMDR, uses it, b- believes in it, and can talk about what EMDR is, how it works, and how it, how it's, how it overlaps with OCD treatment, where it overlaps, and potentially where it falls short. So um, it, it sounds like you're up for the challenge. So I'll, I'll, I'll release the, uh, the mic over to you to, uh, to lead us off. So t- tell us a little bit about um, what, what EMDR is. Okay, so EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And this was started by a woman named Francine Shapiro. It's been around for decades, has a large research base, but that research base is more geared towards PTSD. That's what it was developed to treat. Um, The VA uses it to treat PTSD in veterans. Um, And it has gotten quite the following over the last, you know, 20 years or so has really boomed big time. And you'll see lots of EMDR therapists around now. Um, But essentially, EMDR is a way of taking memories and pulling them up in the mind, getting the distress that's associated with those memories off and then re-putting that memory away with more adaptive material attached to it. So if anybody ever saw anything about Prince Harry doing some treatment, he was doing EMDR. And I think most people think of EMDR as, okay, so we're going to do the eye movement stuff where you're following your Mm -hmm. therapist's eyes back and forth. And that's true. There is bilateral stimulation associated with that treatment. Um, But what's happening in that is we're trying to get the distress off of traumatic memories and then make it so that doesn't follow somebody throughout their life anymore. Okay. So I threw out a couple of things in, in there. I mean, wh- I think one of the big ones is you said bilateral stimulation. I think that's, yeah. you know, I, that, that sounds like, what, from what I know about it, that's one of the primary agents of change, one of the main reasons that EMDR is, is said to work. Could you tell us a little bit about, first off, what that term means, and then, and then what that means in terms of treatment for PTSD? So, bilateral stimulation comes in different formats um, within EMDR. The one that was original was the eye movement one, where you're crossing the center line of your body, watching your therapist um, move their hand back and forth, and you're doing that in rapid um, sets where your eyes are moving back and forth. The other 
modalities for BLS are tapping, where we have people tap almost like a butterfly. So if you imagine crossing your arms over your chest and you're going to tap um, on your collarbone or in your shoulder area back and forth or tapping on top of your knees. We also do auditory BLS where you have a tone in one ear and then the other back and forth. With kids, BLS can look a little different, can be coloring from one side of the page to the other, going back really fast, um, backwards and forwards, and a whole host of other things. The thought behind BLS um, as a part of EMDR, well, we don't actually really know exactly. The research literature isn't totally positive on BLS and how it works within EMDR. There's different theories. Um, one of the bigger theories is it matches REM cycles. And mm. we know in REM sleep, there's a lot of things that are getting worked through in the brain. And so maybe it possibly mimics that. Another really big theory is the working memory taxation theory, um, where if we have something in mind, and we try to, so if you have something in short term memory, and you pull that up, if you are also doing something else at the same time, your brain can only do so many things and that can help reduce the vividness and the emotionality of that memory that you're trying to hold at the same time as you're doing the BLS. So, do we have a definitive answer on why EMDR is helpful if BLS is like that part of it? I don't think we have a definitive answer on that yet on why BLS um, might be a helpful piece of EMDR. But as the treatment stands now, that is a piece of EMDR is to do BLS. Okay. We're, perhaps as a side note, where, where did that originally develop? I guess, where, do you know, have any idea where they got the idea of, you know, m moving your eyes back and forth? I mean, I, sp I suppose you know, some of the brain science behind it, as best I know, is, you know, our brain is split up into right hemisphere, left hemisphere, and um, they can be separated in a sense where they can, you know, in some research, it's a super interesting research, um, they, they cut that connection between the two, the corpus callosum or colossum? However, your professor yeah. uh, des described it <laughs> is the way you way you say it now, um, and the the right side and the left side kind of can act independently, and and it's it's very interesting stuff. If anyone's interested in it, but I guess how how did they then get the idea that trying to trying to move the eyes back and forth will help to integrate the brain? And I suppose where did they get the idea that then the brain was disintegrated? Yeah. So the. BLS aspect of EMDR, when that came into um, play, Franchi Francine Shapiro, the, the person who started EMDR, the researcher behind all of that, um, she was out for a walk one day, at least this is the story that I've been told. She was out for a walk one day and um, noticed that her eye, she was thinking through something and noticed that her eyes started to move back and forth, I think though, though diagonally across her vision field. And she wondered a little bit about that. That stoked her curiosity and thus she entered into a research realm of trying to figure out what was the, the point of the eye movements as she noticed like she was getting less distress over the thoughts she was having. And so she developed EMDR after that. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting those, those, those little experiences that some researchers have, have had that then launches into, well, triggers their curiosity and launches them into this uh, body of research that can produce this sort of uh, sort of treatment process. All right, so so if they're finding this back and forth um, eye movement can help to resolve. I guess what is the in in 
Give us an idea about what then treatment would look like, since, it, as you said, it's developed for PTSD. What does treatment look like using EMDR for PTSD, kind of its its flagship sure. um, approach? So when, if any of you were to go into a trauma, an EMDR therapy session, what would happen is a series of, there's eight phases to EMDR. Mm. There's going to be some preparation that's going to happen um, and some history taking, some treatment planning that's going to happen. And then once you got through those, you're going to sit down with your therapist and your therapist is going to ask you a series of questions. These questions are designed, just like you were talking about with different hemispheres of the brain, to light up the brain. Because... EMDR is based on something uh, around this um, theory that we hold memories in associations. So there, mm. you know, if you think for a minute about like, if I said ice cream or dogs, you may have a series of memories that would all link together. And so what fires together, wires together. Mm. And when you sit down with your therapist, you're going to come up with the thing you're having, you know, tension around or conflict around within yourself and you're going to be asked a series of questions they'll ask you to come up with like the worst part of that memory and then they're going to ask you what's that mean about you like in this moment what what is that negative cognition that holds to yourself what do you want to believe about yourself and how true do you feel that is in this moment and then you're going to go through your emotions around that memory what it feels like in your body and then they're going to start a set with you where you're going to hold that memory in mind along with that negative cognition about yourself and you're going to do what's called a set where they're going to take you through that memory they're going to ask you to just start there and let your mind go wherever it needs to and the thought behind that is is that any part of that memory that's holding distress as you're thinking about that um, then it's going to start to lose the vividness and emotionality associated with it there's going to be movement and shifts in your thinking and over time as you continue to do more and more sets you're pulling more and more of the distress off of that memory until you get to a place that's neutral or positive and at that point what you're going to do is then go back and you're going to attach that positive cognition to that memory so that now when we're storing the memory away again it could be something like so let's say we have somebody who went through a car accident mm -hmm. and the negative cognition around that is you know um i didn't have control or i um I was negligent in some way causing this thing to happen. Mm -hmm. You would get some distress off of that, and then you're going to put that memory back away with something like that's over now, um, or I got through that, or whatever it is. And so when the memory is stored away, it has a new meaning to it that's not going to be causing you more distress. The other piece of all that is, is that if you have associative memories that are linked to that, that also are causing distress. So let's say we have somebody who had multiple car accidents and they're coming in for treatment. The car accidents may all come up at certain points in those sets. And so you're going to clear the distress off of all of those associations. So when you put the whole network back in with adaptive material attached, then they don't hold that same kind of charge anymore. Mm. Okay. Interesting. So, kind of that, that the first bit that you were talking about, right before the sets begin, that sounded very consistent with CBT. I was wondering if you were going to make that connection. I should hope so. 
<laughs> yeah, we're going to look at all that history taking, right? That preparation, all of those pieces, and um, really looking at the cognitions that are associated with everything. Um, it does look a lot like CBT. And the interesting thing about all of this to me is that there is kind of like this unspoken or maybe sometimes quite spoken war between CBT camps and EB EMDR camps. Depending on what forum you're on, but go on. Yes, yes go on. definitely what forum you're on. But ultimately, you know, in, in my mind, we're using a lot of the same things. Mm -hmm. We're just doing them in different forms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, to, to that end, to the person who's kind of curious about the overlap between between those two treatments. So let's just say again, right, right before the sets go on, uh, I, I know for, I know, I would imagine that someone might be listening to this and, and trying to wonder what what treatment modality they should be getting for the this situation that they're going through, and then what treatment is going to look like, and what's all, I mean, at the end of the day, what's going to help that person, right? right. And there's going to be, as I mentioned at the very top of the show, there's going to be a lot of claims and a lot of confidence within the two camps. As I've been in therapy land long enough, you start learning more about these and you say, you start to see a lot of them are kind of doing a lot of the same stuff. They just call them slightly different things. Um, but man, you slap a label on it and, you, and you, you say it with some gusto. It sounds like a whole new theory. But... What are some what are some of the key differences then between the first half, like the CBT CBT of traditional CBT land, and this first bit, whatever the first couple um, uh, phases of treatment are before we get to the sets in EMDR? Yeah, so you know if you're looking at something like okay, let's look at re research based treatments for for PTSD. We've got prolonged exposure and, you know, cognitive processing therapy. And, you know, with prolonged exposure, you're going to be telling that story of the trauma, right? Well, with EMDR, you also are telling the story mm -hmm. in quotation marks. You're just doing it in your mind as you do it. It's more of like, for those of you who are totally in with OCD therapy, mm -hmm. think of an imaginal script mm -hmm. and you are coming up with a story of, um, you know, the worst case scenario. It's, it's kind of like that, right? You're coming in, but this time you're doing it with something that happened to you, but you're holding it in your mind and you are still going through it as a movie in your mind as you're doing these sets. Prolonged exposure is going to have you talking it out and you're going to be telling that story. The nice thing, so the differences can be, I mean, are we doing exposure in both places? That's a big, you know, topic of debate. Is, is it exposure just in a different element, mm -hmm. maybe with some added things to it? One of the things I love about EMDR is that therapists can do this treatment blind. You never actually have to hear the story of the trauma. So if you have somebody who is coming in and they have, you know, a long history of childhood sexual abuse and they really don't, they can't, like they can't get themselves to talk about it. Right. You can do EMDR without ever having to actually hear the story. All the therapist needs to know is, are we at a place in these sets where the material has switched to neutral or positive? Or are we still in a place where you're struggling in, in a negative and we're still more distressed to get off? And so that is one big difference between the two, is being able to do it blind. And that sounds like it's, it, now, now we're in the sets right. already, right? Yeah. And, and essentially yeah. with this... <clears throat> Excuse me. Essentially, with this, there again internally for this person, for the, and, and that's a that's a tremendous advantage between traditional ERP 
and EMDR kind of in this theory with a lot of, a lot of, and I'm going to put an asterisk on that, traditional cognitive exposures, we need to have the person talking about it. But you're kind of talking right. about they can tell in EMDR, they can just tell the story in their head, how they want to, how they need to, in order to start taking away that, that, that distress. Yeah. That's a it's huge a really level of buy-in. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really nice way to be able to do that. But on the flip side of that, there's also something really healing and good about being able to tell a story and watch your therapist be able to respond with compassion and wonderful empathy, right? So also both of key. these treatments, and, and you can do that with EMDR too. I mean, when you're checking in within those sets, you can tell what you're thinking about and you're going to get that same response. So some people who may need to not have to tell their story, EMDR may be a better route for them. Mm -hmm. But if telling your story and going through a narrative is something that you want to do, then either treatment may be beneficial for you. Mm, okay. Um, just to, again, kind of in the way that you were describing those sets, like it, I think one of the differences maybe in the way that someone is telling this story, you talked about it in the frame of cognitive exposure. Cognitive exposure for anybody who's new to this world is going to be a, a, a story uh, the story that you write, that you tell, that's oftentimes it's the worst case scenario. It's what your fear is, and you're gonna you're gonna go you're gonna go to eleven on this, yeah. and you're gonna tell it's the worst case scenario that you can possibly imagine, and you're gonna read that story over and over and over and over and over again until you're bored about it. Um, but generally, with the, with OCD, the obsessions is something that hasn't happened or is really unlikely to happen, whereas with EMDR, especially with that trauma, we're telling that story, or this person is telling the story of something that has actually happened that has a little bit of overlap between real event OCD. I, I'm, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. If we were to just take a quick step back into the cognitive restructure, or what I would call the cognitive restructuring piece right before we get into it, um, is there any difference in kind of the, the, the processing that somebody might do about you know, maybe the, as, as um, the ICBT would call the vulnerable self theme or that uh, the core fear in, you know, in other stories, like what that story means for me or what this, what this trauma says about me and my future. Is there any significant difference between the way they'd be processing that in EMDR versus some of these other modalities? I mean, when it comes down to, so in trauma-based stuff, you're right, we're dealing with past things that happened to us, or sometimes it's what could have happened. Like it was bad enough, but then also, man, I was at risk of this, you know, I could have died kind of thing. And that process is, is bothering us. So for instance, I was in a really bad car accident um, years ago and um, a 15 passenger van crossed the meeting of an interstate and slammed into my car. Well, I developed PTSD after mm. that. And the hard pieces were, yes, I could have died, but um, the other negative cognition I had associated that with that was um, it had started snowing. Why didn't I make us get off the road? So there's that negative cognition piece right there, right? Right. And so with other pieces, we would challenge those, like we would challenge those thoughts. And EMDR, we're not so much challenging those thoughts. We're allowing it to, um, you're, we're allowing the client's brain to just go where it needs to go. And we're kind of allowing the client to guide that process. Whereas in other situations, as a therapist, we're going to be a little bit more directive and challenge those cognitions and that way. That doesn't mean that in EMDR, we don't do these things called interweaves, where if a client is stuck and they aren't able to get past a certain cognition or a somatic 
feeling in the body that we aren't going to help them do that by mm -hmm. just twisting things just a tiny bit um, by saying something like, well, you know, like, what would you today want to tell yourself at that point in time? Um, and that is enough to shift things sometimes. Mm -hmm. But we're going to mostly stay out of the process and let the client just go where it needs to go. It almost sounds like there's a free association element to that. Yeah, a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If if the if the conversation gets too left field or, you know, they've started talking about their travel and then all of a sudden they're talking about a thing that ha happened at work. It, it, does that does the therapist kind of bring him back to it or is it, yeah. you know, we're we're kind of going where they're going? Yeah, so we there's a standard protocol in EMDR where you do just let the client's brain go wherever it needs to. And often, if they start thinking about work, that's a good sign. Um, so if we've started and they truly are rooted in their trauma at the beginning, and then we've done series of sets, and now all of a sudden their brain is just no longer holding distress, and they've gone on to, oh, well, what am I doing at work tomorrow? Then that's a sign that we've gone to neutral or positive content. And we're mm. going to come back to the original target at that time and say, what do you notice about? that now and then if there's still distress associated with that we're going to keep going until there's we check in with the target and they're like there's nothing there anymore and then we're going to wrap that target up and start installing positive stuff but if you have a client who you you know some of this is clinical judgment but if you have a client you're coming back and the target is still now showing distress even though they started thinking about work then we have two other kind of major protocols that we switch to where we are coming back to that target more frequently mm -hmm. um, and not allowing that free association to go. So if they get off track of that particular content, we just bring them straight back to target again and then over and over again. And then there's another one where we can make it really short where we're basically staying on just one scene. Do this a lot with clients who have a lot of association or do this with clients who are struggling with like the sound of a door handle or the sound of the crash and we will do that on repeat to get that distress off of that one scene as fast as possible right so it's going to kind of be that that sound that story that mental image um just playing over and over for a discrete amount of time or just like for the durate like five minutes and then talk about it five minutes and then talk about it yeah, we do it really short. So when we do what's called EMD, um, so we're just doing these very short sets. Yeah. They're very, very, it's still fast with the BLS and we're doing very short, like 10 seconds. You're doing them really quick oh, and you're coming quick. right back to target. So you're just doing it over. It's repeated exposure basically to that sound over and over and over again until the distress comes down. Right, right. So ahead of that, then that question about distress, right? Um, you know, one of the things we talked about in exposure and response prevention is, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to do this exposure, do an exposure to raise their anxiety level, you know, in the, in the classical conversation about habituation. We want that anxiety to go up. We, we, we want them to stay there without distraction, without neutralization, other sorts of compulsion until anxiety starts to come down. Of course, there are other theories out there. Um, you know, we talked about uh, 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 Greenberg, um, you know, where he, he's saying we don't want distress to be there. We want anxiety to be gone. If there's evidence of, if there's anxiety, that's evidence of rumination, which is part of the problem. So where does distress fit into EMDR treatment? So distress with an EMDR treatment, we're taking a SEDS rating at the beginning when we're doing that check-in. So okay. we're checking to see zero to 10, where are you? 
And then we're trying to watch that fall. So we don't check in with it a ton. Mm -hmm. We want to, that's why we're doing that positive, neutral, negative um, association in between sets, like just kind of checking in with the client. You know, what are you noticing is often what we'll say. So we'll ask them to pause. What do you notice? They'll tell us what they're noticing. You know, this feeling in my stomach is getting worse, or um, I'm noticing that the picture is getting like dimmer. It doesn't feel as, as strong anymore. And we're, associating that with, okay, so they're starting to lose some distress or they're starting to even gain some distress. And then we're going to keep that train moving. We're going to put them right back into it and see where we go the next set. If we see a client whose um, distress level continues to increase, 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 mm -hmm. then we're going to check in about that and make sure that we're not putting them in a place where they are no longer connected to that content. Have we dissociated? Are we like off topic? Or like, have we gone someplace else? And then we're going to close down processing and, and deal with that dissociation. Or we're going to help them with an interweave to get that distress to start to come down um, in a different way by doing something like, okay, let's notice that feeling in your stomach, the set, why don't you just focus on that, that um, feeling and let's see where, what goes on with that feeling in this next set. And then we can adjust things as we go. So it is checks in, check-ins, but we're not checking for SEDS. We only check for a SEDS rating again. Once we get through to like three sets of positive and we go back to target. And if that's, then we do some more sets and it's still positive when we come back to target again, then we check SEDS and see if it's come down. Right. Okay. I mean, I, I, I could really imagine, you know, as, as you're doing this, I, I had the question in mind about, you know, what, what happens, and we may have seen this with, uh, with folks who are doing exposures, um, that as we're doing it, that anxiety isn't coming down, and it's only increasing. And oftentimes, there's something else secondary kind of attached to that, right? This other, this other narrative that's not being addressed. It's right. interesting that as you talked about with your car accident, if, you, if you're comfortable talking a little bit more sure. about yeah. that, you talk about the car accident, but then there's this whole second, which is its own thing. And then this whole other narrative about then my responsibility, your responsibility, what I should have done, could have done, all this stuff. And I could see that really turning itself backwards into guilt and more particularly going back into shame. And I bet that could lead to some dissociation. Right. Yeah. I mean, toxic shame is such a big thing and often seen in trauma where we have this toxic shame around what we could have done differently. We see this in all different kinds of trauma, sexual mm -hmm. traumas, physical traumas, you know, any anything that happens. I mean, I've had several traumas in my life and all of them, if I were to go back retroactively and look at the cognition that I was having, it all comes back to me being negligent in some way and allowing those things to happen. I didn't allow any of them to happen. Oh, that word, allow. Yeah. I wanted allow. that was the thing. Yeah. I said it right. was okay. Go ahead. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Somehow I was the one that did that, but, and your listeners don't know this about me yet, but I also have a history of OCD. So my case presentation was very uh, complex because I had this history of trauma and this history of OCD. And so you can start to hear a little bit of my OCD feared possible self, that vulnerable self theme that we talk about in ICBT was also present in my PTSD um, cognitions. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, my case was very difficult to treat. Right. Yeah. And that vulnerable self thing, I know, I know I've, I've referenced that term before. Well, how would you just in a snippet define what the vulnerable self theme is? 
sure. and, its, and its role within treatment. I suppose, it, are, are we now stepping too far into OCD discussions, or is this a, is this something that you would also a discussion you would also have within uh, EMDR frame? Absolutely. So vulnerable self themes are not just for OCD. Mm. Vulnerable selves happen in all different kinds of areas, definitely in trauma. What we look at when we're looking at vulnerable self theme is usually that's going to form sometime in childhood or adolescence. I look at it as kind of like the break of innocence, right? Where something happened in your life where things shifted and all of a sudden you kind of notice things about yourself that maybe you didn't notice before. I know exactly the moment that my fear of possible self or my vulnerable self theme started. Mm-hmm. Um, I was six years old. Um, my parents were getting divorced and they were beautiful. They handled that divorce beautifully. There's nothing that they could have done differently. Um, and it was the right decision for them. So nothing like that. They, I never, they, I thought they were best friends my whole entire childhood, but that moment in time kind of shifted things for me to be like, oh, wait, adults don't have it all together completely. I better make sure that things are okay for me, right? And Mm. I started to become much more um, prone to wanting control. And my brother would tell you I definitely wanted control at that time. So that is kind of that formation, the vulnerable self theme all of us probably have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's this confidence about the self, self self-identity, traumatic things that have happened to us that can all aid in that formation. But when we look at OCD, um, when we're looking especially at inference-based CBT for Mm -hmm. OCD, we're taking that vulnerable self-theme, and this is kind of the newer stuff with ICBT, um, but we're looking at more of a feared possible self for OCD that is you know, kind of forms out of that vulnerable self theme. That's part of it, but it's still also coming along with the same reasoning process that's gotten hijacked um, within OCD. So it's going to be a doubt about the self that is um, dependent on over-reliance on possibility, dismissal of actual evidence, and irrelevant associations about the self. So essentially, it's not a real self at all. It's just a self that we're worried we will become when we have OCD. And it's just another obsessional doubt. Right. I, 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 I like the way I, I probably heard this in, in the training that I went through with you, um, is the, the vulnerable self theme is who we, who are afraid will become unless we do our compulsions or unless yeah, we do right. something. So it's like all those behaviors that we're doing, we do them to, to hold back the floodgates because yep. if not, then this will be true or this will happen or my life will become this. Right. Um, so it's kind of like in this story, it's like, yeah, I, I need to be there to hold myself together because no one else is going to do it for me. And if I don't do all this, then everything's going to fall apart. Right. Yeah. And so like all of my OCD all ended up coming around negligence. Like mm-hmm. I never had, um, you know, sexual orientation OCD. I never had pedophilia OCD. All of my OCD was around accidental harm, scrupulosity that was more geared towards I'm going to do something and God's going to get mad. Okay. And then contamination OCD. I'm going to do something. I'm going to get sick and that's going to punish my family or I'm going to get my family members sick and I'm going to lose them and that will be my fault. Right. But all of it is based, you can see how like all of that formed around this feared possible self that I was going to be negligent. This is kind of within ICBT, the answer for why people have the specific bag of doubts that they have. Right. Oh, all the, all the power in your hands. That's yeah. a lot of, it's a lot of pressure for, what'd you say? A six-year-old? 
Yeah, it was a huge amount of pressure. And I still had these beautifully lovely parents, right? Like there was no reason for me to be able to take that on. My parents were fantastic, are still fantastic. I adore them both, but my little brain went that way, right? Right. Yeah. That's where... And I say that because I want listeners to know that, especially parents out there, because yeah. I'm a parent too, mm-hmm. that you can do everything in your world, everything, be the perfect parent. My parents are wonderful. Mm-hmm. And still something might happen that may shift things. And I just want you to know that's not your fault. That's not your fault. This wasn't my parents' fault. Mm-hmm. It was just the way my brain interpreted this. Yeah. The, the podcast listeners aren't going to see me shaking my head and just grabbing my face in disappointment with life. Um, <laughs> talking about those with clients sometimes is that, you know, with, with kids, we were just talking about our, our kids. You know, we, I often say like, oh, or People who are thinking about becoming parents are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to mess up my kids. I'm so messed up. I'm going to mess up my kids. I'm like, no, it's, you know, we, we are messed up by our parents in some sort of magical way. And then we do our darndest to not mess up our kids in the way that we are messed up and give them the best leg up that we possibly can. And then we discover that we will mess them up in our own new and novel ways that no one could have foreseen. And there is no antidote for other than them figuring it out ages and ages hence. It's... Yep. That's the dirty secret of parenting, right? We're always trying to do the best we can, and yet none of us are ever going to be perfect. So we have to do, you know, allow ourselves to know that we've got some wins, and then the rest of it, we can help our kids with resilience and grit, and we can Mm. still show up for them even when, you know, things have been hard. I think that's an an ignored character trait, right? Yeah. I mean... Those are those are the the funner way. Those are the more Instagrammable ways of saying psychological flexibility. I think. Right. But yep. we're all saying the same thing. Um, back to the point about all saying the same thing, in different ways. All right. So, um, okay. So the goal then. So we've got we've gone through the what what I would call the cognitive restructuring um, phases of mm-hmm. of EMDR. Then we get into the sets, and we're telling this telling the story, exposing ourselves to that thing. Starting small and then building up, or just starting from wherever they, or starting from big, because that's the worst yeah, case scenario. You start with the worst, the worst part of that experience for you. So we're telling that distress is coming down, distraction is happening. What? Not well. Maybe may or may not be purposely. When that distraction happens, good. We're getting to these neutral phases, and now, how does that narrative happen? Where you said it's kind of um, maybe this is the, the R in EMDRs. How do we then feed that narrative back in? As you said, yeah. um, we kind of through all of that, we 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 then tack on this new story about ourselves within that that story. How does that yeah. happen? So, you know, as you're going through EMDR and you're getting the distress off of this memory, you're starting to have some like you know, insight into, oh, hey, you know, this wasn't my fault or, oh my gosh, you know, I did the best I could in that situation. And as that distress starts to come down, now we've got the toxic shame is off of it. We have self-compassion for that part of us that went through that experience. And now we're ready to attach that positive cognition of I got through it or I really am okay or I'm good enough, um, whatever it is that we need to attach to that memory. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pull that memory up and we're going to hold it in the positive cognition. And we're going to what we do, what we call installation. We're going to now install those two things together and we're going to do sets at the same time. And we're going to do it just like we were. We're going to make sure no other distressing material comes up as we're thinking through. We're going to have our client notice, okay, notice that that situation and notice that positive cognition. And we're going to mirror the two together 
and see where that goes in the brain. And as that continues to stay positive, we're going to return back to um, that target and we're going to check in and make sure that positive cognition is strong. And then at the end of that, we're also going to do a body scan to see if there's any distress left in the body. Um, EMDR really is cognitive, somatic. I mean, we've got everything, you know, emotional, everything is lit up. So we're also making sure that the physical aspects of the body are no longer holding that distress. And if they are, then we're going to kind of focus in on any area of the body that has distress, and we're going to try to relieve that distress um, as we process through that. And through so then at the end of that, it's all put away. Through those similar means. So let's say, you know, uh, yeah. they're still thinking about that thought, they're th still thinking about that car accident, that event, that whatever the thing might be. Yep. They still get that pit in the stomach. So we're going to focus yep. then mentally on the pit in the stomach. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is it shaped yep. like? All of that. Yeah. Still for yep. 10 seconds and process or extend that's usually yeah that at that time we're not usually doing we're usually doing in the standard protocol so we're going to be doing something that's a little bit longer 20 ish seconds um all still all tapping moving the eyes all, all still that tapping. stuff mm -hmm. okay yep making sure that we've got all that down okay and then once all this happens someone is fixed and they never have any problems ever again Right? So what we do oh. is um, when the person comes in for the next session, we're going to still do a reevaluation of that target. So we're going to make sure that that target is still feeling completed and not no longer causing distress. Um, I find that most of my clients, when I've done EMDR, they are feeling like that is kind of like a done memory for them. Occasionally, there'll be something that comes up where there's maybe a missed detail from that memory um, that just didn't get processed. And so, we need to reopen it just to handle that particular scene that uh -huh. got, you know, skipped over or whatever. But for the most part, I find that EMDR is incredibly beneficial. I know that I kind of fell into EMDR because I that's how my PTSD was treated. It was right. highly effective for stuff I never thought I would get, be able to like get distress off of. Um, but it really did. Wow. So, yeah. I'm trying to think about if there's anything else that I would add. I have a ton of other questions, but I think that they're they're kind of leading into the the, the listener's question. Well, first off, before we jump into the listener's question, is there anything else that you'd want to add to kind of uh, uh, address kind of what EMDR looks like, how it looks? I know we've talked about it kind of as focused as we can on what it traditionally would look like in its, you know, in its element, right? So you mean like where EMDR is best used? Yes, most effectively used and, and um, yeah, most effectively used, why it's designed and where it, where it, it's, it's, um, where it thrives. Okay, so definitely within PTSD, um, <coughs> trauma, memories in general, and we should talk about the difference between PTSD and trauma for mm -hmm. a minute, maybe. Um, you know, trauma, we, we all have things that happen to us that could be traumatic, but that doesn't mean they necessarily are going to be. Um, traumas are things that happen that kind of um, make us feel unsafe in our body, unsafe emotionally, but PTSD is a medical condition, mm -hmm. and so there are actual criteria that we have to 
meet to get a PTSD diagnosis. Um, there's a lot of talk within the trauma field about whether the criteria A of PTSD, which means that something has to be a life-threatening or sexual um, event that has mm -hmm. happened, um, or through your work as like a first responder, um, whether that really fits with everyone's experience with PTSD. Um, I have definitely treated some people for things like um, being on the other side of a massive betrayal where their life wasn't necessarily in danger, but their life as they knew it was. Um, and that mimicked very much a PTSD-like experience, mm. but they wouldn't have met criteria for PTSD because it wasn't, their life wasn't actually in danger. So, PTSD, medical condition, but traumas that happen to us can still bring on the same types of distress as the things that fit with PTSD. And it'll be interesting to see where the research field goes on, do we loosen that a little? Do we keep it where it is? I don't know. But so for EMDR, though, that's where it's designed. That's where I find it does really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, now, within the EMDR community, there are lots of people doing EMDR on lots of different things. Um, and I have colleagues who have found success in helping with things like chronic pain or things like, um, let's see, I have people who have done EMDR with eating issues, things like that, substance use, mm -hmm. um, I, that's just not my area of expertise. Mm -hmm. So I keep my EMDR to trauma only. That's what I use EMDR for. Right. No. I, 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 in, in my classic interest of po poking the bear, I, I, I wanted to try to poke the bear and see if you'd take a hard stance on whether or not, you know, big, big T or little T traumas and how do they fit in, in social media discussion of this is traumatic or this is PTSD. I'm going to leave that to the side. I don't really want to get into that. I'm already, I'm already giving a talk this IOCDF on cancel culture and I've uh, cancel culture and real event OCD. And I've, I've, I've some colleagues like, why are you doing that? You're going to get canceled. You're going to say something wrong. And I'm like, probably. Um, but I won't do that to you. You're too nice. So, so, so well, we, big T or little T trauma. I'll, I'll jump in a little bit. Ooh, it's going it. to happen. Big T or little T trauma. I'm not afraid here. Oh, so, you know, I think as a research community, it is very important to have criteria when we are doing research so that we know when something is effective or not. And I think that that is very important to science. When you come to personal experience in the world, um, I can tell you from my own trauma experiences, I have some that are definitely criteria A. They meet it. 100%. Mm -hmm. But I have other things that happened in my life that would not meet that, that were much harder for me to actually get through as a person. Now, does that mean that everything that happens to us is a traumatic event? No. There are things that just happen that are tough to get through. Um, but, you know, you going out later in the day and it rains on a brand new outfit, that's not a trauma. We need to be careful that we're using these words in ways that are... Um, but it's a cute outfit. It's a cute outfit that it, got ruined. It, That's what that is. Ruined. Sorry, Kevin. You can't have it as a trauma. Oh, I want it as a trauma. All right, go ahead. 
Okay. But when we are, when we as people, we have we have to hold space for people who have actually been through really hard things, and that's why language matters. We, mm-hmm. we can't just say that you know if if one of my kids snaps at me today and is angry, that's not necessarily a trauma. However, if I were screaming at them every day and I did that throughout their childhood. That could be traumatic. And so that is what we need to look at is, you know, what, what, and and it really does matter what the person feels. And I know that, Um, but not everything we go through is going to be a traumatic event. They can be distressing, disappointing, angering, saddening, but yeah. And it's so wiggly though, right? You could say, you know what? Yelling at your kids all day, every day. Yeah, I think a lot of us would probably chalk that up to that's probably traumatizing. And yet for another person, and that experience may not be in, internalized as traumatic or traumatizing. It is right. just a thing that my parents did that they didn't love, but may not be traumatic. So again, it's exactly. It, but you would think that that would fit within criteria A. It's yeah, yeah so that and, and I think that's where I think that is where uh, uh, clinical intuition comes in and, and experience of just kind of reading this person, knowing where they, they go, but trying to find that balance between what is the criteria say in the DSM and what this person in the room is experiencing. Right, exactly. Yeah, we have to be client-centered and client-focused, and then research needs to be science-oriented, and that is going to help inform clinical um, decision-making, but the person in front of us is also going to help form clinical decision making. Right. All right. Well, thank you yeah. for, for treading into those waters. If we are both canceled, I will let you know. Okay. I thank think you. the board will let us know. I don't know. <laughs> Instagram lets us know. Who knows? Anyways, <laughs> we'll discover it together. Um, but, uh, well, why don't, so I'll, I'll play the question here. Um, okay. And, and then we'll, we'll jump into talking about the overlap between what this, what this caller is asking about and, and, and then what EMDR can look like in the world of OCD and what its okay. effects can be. Hi, Kevin. It's me again. You answered one of my questions a couple months ago. Great episode, by the way. Big fan of the podcast still. I especially loved this past episode where you slightly addressed some EMDR questions, and I wanted to see if you could dive a little deeper into that. I, a year or two ago, was actually treated with EMDR for complex post-traumatic stress, and it didn't really have anything directly to do with my OCD, but I did notice that coming out of the EMDR and experiencing that was really intense for me and actually brought up a lot of OCD symptoms that I thought I was past. It actually triggered a really intense OCD spiral that I kind of had to work my way out of and do some ERP and it took me quite a while. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on how EMDR treatment affects those with OCD. Um, Maybe not specifically to treat OCD, but maybe if there's any correlation with trauma and OCD triggers. I know that OCD can kind of spike when you're under stress um, and that's definitely something I've experienced, but I'm curious if there are any studies or science behind EMDR being more intense for people with OCD or maybe something to be aware of before going into it for um, trauma treatment. Thanks. 
So what are your initial thoughts on that? We're kind of talking a lot about, you know, again, EMDR's effect on OCD, correlation between trauma and OCD. I guess what, what, what was going through your mind as you were listening to that question? We definitely want to get to the effect around um, EMDR and OCD, but I think we should start with OCD and trauma in general. Okay. And there's um, one of the leading researchers name is Dr. Caitlin Pensiati. She's amazing. She has a wonderful webpage. Everyone should go to it and learn about um, OCD and PTSD overlap. It's um, she's just, she's awesome. But she and her fellow researchers, and there's a lot of really great researchers out there studying this, um, Nathaniel Van Kirk, um, Fontenot, um, we've got Chad Wetterneck. Like, there's a lot of people that are starting to really get into studying this overlap between OCD and trauma or PTSD. And what we're seeing is that that comorbidity can be pretty high, anywhere between 19 and 41%, depending on what you look at with the study. But we know that there, according to Dr. Pensi, work that there are probably two presentations. So one of them is called static PTSD and OCD, meaning those two presentations, the symptoms um, of OCD and PTSD don't really overlap. So maybe we have somebody with a trauma around a car accident um, and they may have some PTSD related responses to that car accident, but their OCD is not around checking their driving behavior. It's around maybe contamination and they're not, the symptoms are not overlapping. When we have the other presentation, which is called dynamic, you often see symptoms that can be hard to distinguish between what's PTSD here in this client and what is OCD in this client. Mm -hmm. Because when we look at OCD and PTSD, they both have avoidance behaviors. They both are known for, you know, intrusive thoughts, images, um, urges, those kinds of things. And so it can look, and, and they can have rituals, both mm -hmm. of them. So they can look very similar. And when you have a client with both, it's really important to slow things down and try to figure out what is the trauma and what is the OCD. When we're looking at trauma responses, it's going to be about, you know, the, the rituals are going to be around getting safe again, maybe checking the doors every night to make sure that a repeated occurrence of the trauma isn't going to happen if you were robbed before, for instance. Whereas with OCD, rituals are going to be more around an imagined scenario that might be happening but there's not any direct evidence in this moment to support that happening. And it's not necessarily based on something that's happened in the past, although that can help inform a doubt's formation. But in this moment, we're imagining that this door isn't locked, even though we can see it's locked, and we're going to check it 50 times to make sure. When we look at avoidance behaviors and PTSD, we're trying to avoid that memory coming back into our mind or trying to avoid a situation that's going to put us back into a place where we could get re-victimized. In OCD, we're avoiding situations that are going to pull us into um, prevented, we're trying to prevent feared imagined scenarios from happening. So in PTSD, we're worried about the past more so. Um, in OCD, we're more worried about present future oriented <coughs> imagined scenarios. So that's kind of the lay of the land. What we know about these um, presentations is that within static presentations of OCD plus PTSD, you can treat them pretty well by doing, let's say, ERP for OCD and prolonged exposure for PTSD. And those can be treated kind of separately by whichever one is kind of presenting in front 
of the other one. So if, you know, somebody comes into session and they're like, my OCD is really bad, but I've also got this PTSD, but I'm not so worried about the PTSD right now. I just really want to work on the OCD. You can treat the OCD and, and probably the PTSD is going to stay where it is. It's not going to get worse, better, whatever. It's just going to stay over there. Same thing if you do it the reverse. But with dynamic situations, which maybe this caller um, had going on, is that when we treat one, OCD can kind of be a little bit of um, a trauma response. So we know that OCD doesn't always occur because of trauma, but often a good portion, the majority of people with OCD either have trauma co-occurring, co so it's concurrent, the trauma and the OCD are happening at the same time, the onset, or the OCD is happening after a trauma. Mm -hmm. So the majority of people with both are having it in that format. And when we know that's there, then perhaps, and we need much more research on this, that perhaps the OCD is a trauma response in some way. It doesn't mean, though, that if we treat the trauma, the OCD is going to go away. It means they both still have to be treated in separate ways, but it does mean that they can affect each other in treatment. So if we treat the OCD, the trauma responses may get bigger because if we aren't doing them at the same time in an effective way, then we may be taking something away from the person that's kind of anchoring them. It's keeping the symptoms of the other one down and we start to treat it, then the other one goes up. Mm -hmm. And that's potentially what happened here with this this person is that they started to treat the PTSD and their OCD flared in response to, oh my God, I don't know what's happening in my system. And now we've got this OCD flare. What I would say is, and I attempted to look this up a little, um, but I would say that that's probably not inherent to EMDR. Um, I would say that any trauma treatment that you are going to do, if it also isn't, you, you aren't also assessing with the OCD at the same time, um, that there is a chance that you could flare it um, by doing trauma treatment and not keeping your OCD treatment also at the forefront. So, do we have the perfect answer for treating comorbid cases? We don't yet. But thankfully, people like Dr. Pensiati and others are working on unraveling that puzzle. Can we get to a place where we're going to really understand, okay, we've got this treatment um, that is going to very much help OCD and PTSD that's co-occurring or is comorbid within the same client. Because we know that those cases are often treatment resistant. Those mm -hmm. OCD cases are often treatment resistant when we have a trauma. And we also know that um, in at least one study, like 82% of the people who um, were having treatment resistance means they failed like one total treatment. Um, they all had trauma. So we know that trauma could potentially affect OCD treatment. And now it's time for us to really unravel what's the best practice there. Right. So lots of research as we move forward. Yeah, lots of research. Right. I mean, so so until that research is done, I mean, let's say let's say this person's coming to your office and they're sitting on your couch and they're talking about that they have they do have a trauma past. Let's say, I mean, I I, I think some of the maybe the Maybe this is an, a, an overstatement or understatement. The, the the dynamic approach that you're talking about seems to be a little bit more complex, a little bit trickier to treat. Yeah. Where do you begin? What would you? What would be an approach? I'm also and and I will also tack on to that. Maybe we'll add this just after. Is you know I'm thinking about like all right. Let's say someone's listening to this and they know that they've got a traumatic event in their past, and they have a presentation of OCD. And they're kind of 
they're and this person's trying to decide. Well, do I do EMDR treatment first? Do I you know, call an OCD uh, uh, specialist? But it, so I guess in terms of let's say this this listener is uh, um, sitting down in your office, where are you approaching, or how are you kind of wading into the waters with this person? Yeah. So when and that that's my major specialty area is the OCD PTSD um, combo of presentation. And so when clients come to me, um, we're doing a lot of history taking at the beginning. I'm mm-hmm. trying to understand where things are looking like OCD, where things are looking like PTSD. We're going through and we're helping to sort out that symptom um, pattern and look at what belongs where. And then once I feel like I've got a pretty good picture of that, and often. I have to say that sometimes I don't jump straight into making people tell me their trauma stories because sometimes they're not ready to do so. Mm-hmm. But if they're ready to, then we, we will gather that history. Sometimes that takes a little bit longer for people to feel comfortable sharing those stories, and mm-hmm. that's okay too. So, but what we're going to do is I'm going to ask that client, what do you feel you want to work on first? Is it your OCD? Is it your PTSD? What do you think would be the most helpful. Most of the people that are coming to see me are coming because they've already maybe dabbled in some PTSD work someplace else, um, but now they realize that they have OCD and the OCD is kind of front and center. And so when people come to see me, normally we're going to focus on the OCD first. Um, and I tend to give my clients the choice between ERP and inference-based CBT, so ICBT. Uh, Most of my clients at this point choose ICBT, and so we're entering into that. I find ICBT is beautiful within these cases because it does look at why we believe the things we believe. And so if you have somebody with the doubt of maybe I'm going to hit someone with my car, and yet they were in a car accident. Well, that's an important piece to know. (laughs) Like, okay, well, they were in a car accident. They've had this true experience. I'm not going to tell them, well, that doesn't matter. We're not going to go into that content. That doesn't matter. Like, put that to the side. I'm going to say to them, okay, that's a really big experience. That really matters to you. And we're going to go through ICBT learning why that real experience, though, Mm -hmm. doesn't hold the evidence for the obsessional doubting in this moment now. And I'm going to kind of fluctuate between trauma treatment as it comes up and is needed to work on some of those personal experiences that are informing potentially underneath the OCD. And then I'm going to flip back into OCD treatment. So my advice for anyone who has who has a feeling that they have both PTSD and OCD, and this can be hard to do, mm-hmm. but I'm working hard to like spread the word that everyone needs to do this, try to find a therapist that treats both OCD and PTSD. And luckily for us, Caitlin Pinciotti has collected some names. So mm-hmm. if we go to Caitlin Pinciotti's website, Dr. Pinciotti has a... Um, a list of practitioners who treat um, PTSD and OCD there. That's fantastic. So, I mean, it, so in the case of this person, this car accident person, right? I mean, it kind of sounds like it, it wouldn't be a, a, an irrelevant association. It would be more right. just an out-of-context association. It, yeah, it's still an association that is truly happening. But to this moment in time, when you are, you know, well-rested, you're not intoxicated, you're driving down, you know, a neighborhood street, you're driving the speed limit, it would not be evidence in this moment for the doubt of maybe I'm going to hit somebody with my car. That's not, that's not evidence to support that doubt. So what you can look at there is the direct evidence that you are being a good and cautious driver and you can trust the senses around you to look for people and you're going to stop if somebody crosses your path. But just because you had a car accident in the past 
isn't really evidence for this present moment right now. Right, a prediction that it will happen again and will happen then in this instance, right? Right. This, but we are going to validate that experience for that client. Oh, and sure. that it was hard. Yeah, and right. we're going to do trauma work on that if it's still raw and needs it. Right. Yeah. Is, is this kind of the work that you would do in an interweave? So, if within EMDR? Yeah. Um, the type of work we would do there, yeah, I mean, there's cognitive interweaves, there's somatic interweaves, there's parts work interweaves, there's all kinds like mm -hmm. of things we can do within. My favorite interweaves are to do things like, what did you, what do you wish you could have said? What did you wish you could have done? And those moments to try to like make that situation better for you. Um, what would, like if yourself now could go back and be with that person, what would you say to the younger version of you? Um, those kinds of things are usually my go-tos. Right. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see where having a little bit of that, I mean, what, what we might call a, a mental compulsion of, of scenario twisting actually being helpful. I'm putting it in quotes for anybody out there who's just get raging at me for saying something like that might be helpful. Um, but in terms of saying, yeah, there is an element of saying, I wish I could go back in time and do this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. And can I see myself as a whole person who might have made a mistake and or had just something happen to them? Yeah, self-compassion work is such a big part of trauma work. Yeah. Um, being able to go back and notice that, you know, this bad thing happened and, and maybe it's even something that you did. Like you caused a bad accident that caused the death of a child, for instance. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't say anything about your intentions as a human being or what was going on for you in those moments or that it was an accident and it truly wasn't within your control. And we can have self-compassion for all of those pieces. Mm -hmm. um, that self has to heal somehow and for us to be able to move forward. And those pieces can be big. But when we look at EMDR and OCD, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean necessarily that we can take well, let me step to the research. Okay. So, research on EMDR and OCD is not robust, not yet anyway. Um, and most of the studies that are out there, most of the protocols are more about using EMDR in a way to treat OCD more like um, imaginal exposure. So, taking the worst case scenario that somebody's worried about in OCD and then trying to desensitize that. So, we're going to try to, let's say somebody is, has um, pedophilia OCD and we're going to do an imaginary script and ERP around that. And they're going to try to habituate to that, get that SEDS level, you know, the anxiety like to fall over time. And it's not, it's so boring now, it doesn't bother me anymore. That's kind of what the protocols are for EMDR as well. Mm -hmm is to basically go to that, we call it a flash, flash forward, where you're going to that wor worst case scenario and you're desensitizing that over time. So it's basically taking an imagined script and just doing it as EMDR. Um, and so maybe there is a potential that EMDR is a different way of doing imaginary exposure mm -hmm. for OCD, but the actual research on OCD and EMDR is just not robust enough to be able to say, hey, EMDR is a good treatment choice for OCD. Um, most of those things out there are still incorporating elements of ERP into them anyway, and so that's not something I, I don't do EMDR for OCD, um, at least at this point in time. I guess if I was going to do an imaginary um, exposure, I might attempt to do it through EMDR, mm -hmm. but I don't really use imaginary exposures very often in treatment. So mm -hmm. um, that's just not the route I take with OCD treatment. 
Right. Because I mean, even in the way that you're describing it, it sounds like doing a doing a set an EMDR set is essentially a cognitive exposure, but with the eye movement as a distraction. Yeah, if you do the tax, working memory taxation theory of EMDR, uh-huh. then you are incorporating all of that extra um, taxation on the working memory so that it can't, it has to let go of something. So it lets go of the distress, the emotionality, the vividness of that picture till it becomes something that just doesn't matter to you anymore. This is a type of EMDR called EMDR 2.0. And it has been used with panic. It has been used with phobia. Mm -hmm. And there's been some use with EMDR on that flash forward um, of the worst case scenario. So I mean, to that end, you know, is it, it would essentially be saying, all right, we're going to do maybe a, is this kind of where the effectiveness of what we, what I would call at least a passive exposure where you, you know, audio record a script, put it in your, put it in earphones and just go about your day, go to the store, go for a walk, go for a hike, whatever it might be. Is it, is, are we, is that kind of the same thing? Cause I imagine as you're moving your body, you are doing the bilateral stimulation, but yeah, actually it's, walking, yeah. but you're not doing it within the context. You're not doing it within these discrete 20 minute intense sets. It's this right. passive activity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think that's a really interesting, like, um, um, play on all of that, that, you know, doing ERP that way, those passive kind of imagined scenarios and going about your day, we are kind of taxing our working memory as we do other things. Perhaps that has something to do with it, but who knows? We got to have more research, right? We have to have more research before we understand the mechanism of change within these things. And, um, but if you look at the ICBT lens mm-hmm. of this, then going into the imagination of a future scenario that doesn't isn't going to happen doesn't make any sense. We would rather people get out of their imagination and sink back into the direct evidence in front of them, help change their obsessional reasoning process back into a normal reasoning process where they're not over-relying on possibility, not dismissing their senses, not making irrelevant associations, and instead grounding. So in that sense, if you are an more ICBT inclined, Mm -hmm. then doing EMDR for OCD would be much more in line with an ERP um, appraisal stuff than it would be with ICBT because ICBT would not want you focused on the imagined possibility that might happen because you can just ground in reality and your senses and what you believe about yourself. Right, right. Yeah, and there's a huge, yeah, it, ha- having that component that is kind of short-circuiting that process. I mean, essentially then with those imaginal exposures, you're saying, hey, let's go into the, you know, l- l- let's go into the bubble and let's just play around in there. And isn't that right. where the problem is in the first place? Right, exactly. That's what we would say in ICBT. Instead, instead of going into that imagined s- scenario and even trying to desensitize to it, um, why would we do that when we can just reinstall trust in the self, the senses? Um, so five senses, common sense, internal sense data, like intentions and desires, and who we know ourselves to be. That's where reality is. That's what we do in every other instance of our life when we have OCD. When mm-hmm. we're not triggered in OCD, we're rooting in those things. We believe in them. We accept them as reality. It's only when we are caught up in an OCD bubble that we stop trusting those things and we go with the imagined possibility instead. Right. Oh, and that that the, the question of intention. Ugh, people questioning their intentions all the time. It's like, yeah, all the time. We've it's it's kind of trusting ourselves and who we know ourselves to be, for the most part. 
for our 51% of the time. So there are those times that we do things on a whim or we do things where we're kind of taking a risk or stepping outside of our typical personality. And sometimes those things work out and we discover something new about ourselves. Yeah. And sometimes it explodes in our face and, we, and then we call it a mistake. Yes. Right? Yeah. So who we are generally most of the time. Because again, like you, you and I are on professional face right now. For the most part, yeah. when when we're with our spouses, we're going to kind of be a different person. When we're then in a session with a client, or we're in a conversation with our grandparents, we're going to be slightly different people. But there's still these much common themes. What's that? It's <laughs> been so much more patient than with my spouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like Fair. I'll be much more patient and much more like you know. Then I'm like, hey, come on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pull it together, yeah. spouse. <laughs> so I mean, all right. I, and I know we're, we're we're running long. I don't want to take up too much of your day. All right. So the aforementioned real event OCD, you're familiar? I'm assuming you're yep. familiar. You're familiar. Yes. All right. Is that, would you frame real event? And I'll, right, so real event OCD would be, I would define it as OCD about a past event that has actually happened. Differentiating yep. it from a, a traditional, typical OCD, which is a rumination obsession, uh, an intrusive thought about something that might or could possibly happen. Right, mm -hmm. so it's a it's obsessions about this thing that actually that did indeed actually happen. How would you pull this apart, or, and would you essentially just call real event OCD PTSD treatment? So it depends on what we're looking at. So, like, give me give me an example of real event OCD from your like what if what are you seeing clinically? Okay, so maybe maybe an example might be um, you know. I, I, I got I got drunk in college, had sex with somebody, and I don't know if it was sexual assault. And I'm now questioning whether or not it was sexual assault that I raped this person, or um, I mean, the, f the false memory. The, we'll push that one out. So sure, the rumination yeah. might be, well, I, well, first off, I did this thing. I I know I had sex with this person, right? But the rumination, the compul or the rumination, then is, did I sexually assault this person? Or not. Yeah. And so in that example, what we're looking for for looking at OCD is what's the creation of that doubt? Is there really any evidence that shows that just because you were drunk and had sex with someone that you sexually assaulted them? There's no direct evidence in the here and now to support that leap. And so in that context, then at least through an ICBT lens, mm -hmm. we would be coming back to the creation of that doubt. How, how are you reasoning your way into it? Are you using those three components? Over-reliance on possibility, dismissal of actual evidence, irrelevant associations. And my guess is, is that most people would say, well, but that happens to people. Okay, irrelevant association. We're pulling from hearsay. Possibility, right, hearsay. Right. Yep. I heard on the news that you can't yep. consent if you have any sort of alcohol in your system. Right, all of those things. And so we're still doubting whether or not, like, did we get consent? Did we not? But we could also have an ICBT. We're going to look at selectivity of doubt, too. Like, there's other things in your life that have happened. Like, maybe you walked up to somebody and hugged them, for instance. Did you get consent there? You don't remember. So maybe you didn't. And maybe then that is bad. But you aren't worried about that one. You're worried about this one. Why? And so there's going to be a narrative there that unless there's direct evidence that shows that something truly didn't or did happen, you have to err on what you have, which is the reality of that situation. Mm -hmm. Unless this person that you had sex with comes to you and says, look, you didn't get consent, then 
We don't have any direct evidence for that piece. Direct evidence is so important. It's so important. <laughs> it's so important. Oh, my goodness. It's so important. Yeah. Until we get that direct evidence, how do we treat it as if we don't have direct evidence? Yeah. Right? Yep. Or perhaps, yeah. Um, we got to do it. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So, I know, we're, I know we're going crazy long. So, is there is there anything else that you'd want to add in, in regards to either the overlap between EMDR treatment and OCD, or in regards to this this uh, 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 this listener's question, or just um, uh, just fun anecdotes about life? Do you want any, any <laughs> fun anecdotes about life? Um, favorite a Disney things. movie? Oh, okay, go ahead. Oh, favorite Disney movie. Um, a few things. One would be that you know, thankfully, and I, I'm my I guess this is a message more to the OCD community and the PTSD community. Please be aware of these modalities. I mean, of of these different um, diagnoses. This is going to co-occur in your practice way more often than you have ever anticipated. You're going to come across somebody with trauma if you are an OCD specialist. You are going to come across somebody with OCD if you are a PTSD specialist. You need to make sure you have tools. And I'm a girl who loves tools. The more tools you have in your toolbox to be able to treat PTSD or OCD, mm. the better. I'm trained in ERP. I'm trained in ICBT. I have ACT in my tool belt. I'm learning written exposure therapy and I'm soon I'm hoping soon to actually sit down and really learn CPT I am trained in EMDR but having all of these tools is going to benefit your clients stay out of the camp wars who cares like make sure you're with the research sure that's important right that's why you're not seeing me treat OCD with EMDR we don't have enough for that yet but however if a client comes to me and they have not had success with anything, ACT, ERP, medication, ICBT, and they're like, hey, I've got to try something else, then there's enough research out there for me to be like, well, let's let's attempt this through EMDR then. I just, I think as I get older and I'm getting crankier about, about turf wars, I don't get that. I want people to get better. So that's my message. Those of everybody who's doing like, whether it's prolonged exposure or EMDR, you're treating really great things. Like it's good to treat PTSD. Whether you're doing ACT or ERP or ICBT, you're doing a good job because you're treating OCD. But, but everybody does need to be aware of the treatment options out there. And if you aren't, don't keep treating somebody that has a co-occurring diagnosis that you don't know how to treat. Allow them to go to get treatment where they are. And, you know, different therapists feel differently. I have no problem with somebody maintaining a supportive counseling role with their therapist of origin while I'm treating OCD as long as that therapist understands how I'm treating. I think that's fine. Bonds are important, but I think that that's that. So that's that piece. And then to those of you with OCD or PTSD listening, or if you are like me and have a comorbid presentation, do not lose hope. Mm. My story is very lengthy. And I had 29 years of OCD treatment and um, non-treatment. And before I found something that worked for me, ICBT was what ended up working for me. But that doesn't mean that's going to be the right treatment for everyone else. ERP is wonderful. Also has a huge research base. So find somebody that's the right fit for you. Keep advocating for yourself until you get the right treatment. But don't feel like you have to stay with one certain treatment if it's not working. Go to something else. It's okay to do that. Um, and same thing with PTSD. If you did EMDR and it didn't work for you, don't give up. There's lots of other really solid research-based treatments for you out there. So keep going. But if you can, find a therapist who specializes in both. That will be your best bet to get better.
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I, this has been a, such an eye-opening discussion. I really appreciate all your expertise. I knew you'd be the perfect person to have on to talk about the overlap between these things. So, again, I really appreciate that. I, um, is there is there a place someone can go, perhaps on the interwebs, to learn a little bit more about you and your treatment and the things that you and your people are doing? Yes. Um, myself and Katie Merritt and Gina Abandante run the OCD Training School. So OCDtrainingschool.com is our website for anybody who wants to get some training in OCD um, modalities, particularly right now. We're focused on ICBT, um, but we have other trainings that will be forthcoming. Um, my own personal website is bronwynshroyer.com, um, and you can check that out as well. Um, but yeah, and then if anybody wants to learn more about ICBT, it's icbd.online. Awesome. Well, thank you so much <clears throat> for for sharing your expertise and your knowledge and, and giving us all this time. So um, if if someone has a follow-up question, would you be willing to jump on in the future oh. to chat about it? Absolutely. Yes, awesome. definitely. Cool. Well, uh, until next time, thanks so much and have a great day. Thanks. You too, Kevin. All right, everybody, thank you so much for making it through that episode. I know it was a bit long, but man, she had a ton of information. And I love the way that she, she, uh, she teaches. I think she's very, very clear, very engaging. And uh, I, I, had, I, I, learned a, I learned a ton from her during this conversation, and, and I hope you did too. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and as she said at the very end, if you have more questions or, or if you have any questions about maybe trauma treatments at OCD, about EMDR and, and, and OCD or and, and CBT and ERP treatment, um, send them in. Go over to fearcastpodcast.com, send me a message over there, or again, um, send me an audio question over at Instagram, fearcastpodcast over there. And uh, I would love to have her on uh, to answer some of those questions and to be um, a, a, an authority to speak into your life with that. So, um, uh, but until then, everybody remember that uh, the FearCast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you need a little bit of help in your recovery, go over to fearcastpodcast.com. And there's going to be, uh, if you click on the find help link, there's going to be some links for you there that might point you in the right direction. So uh, until next time, everybody, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously.